Welcome to the continuation of season 11 and episode 132 of the Get So Resilient Show. I'm Garo Hara, and today is our behind the news episode of the show. Now, regular listeners are going to immediately recognize the missing dulcet tones of our regular news host, Dan McDermott, who's Dan with Allergy. Uh, but we do have the dulcet tones of our regular cybersecurity expert, Vin Yoon. So today we were going to take a look at the Twitter hack being, Twitter hacker, I should say, being extradited to the US, the snake espionage infrastructure that cyber agencies have found in over 50 countries, how the EU is going hard on cyber labeling for cloud services over there. And then in our short story roundup, we covered the Capita ransomware attack costs, Microsoft patches and the trading halt for Australian company Technology One. As always, there's plenty of news headlines for us to delve into. So, Vin, welcome back to the podcast. First of all, are you feeling refreshed after your holiday? I'm feeling so good. Um, I guess for the listeners, I did take three weeks to go to Japan with my lovely wife. It was so good. But I do have a question, Gar. What's a lurgy? Never heard of that. A lurgy? Oh, like you're feeling ill. Yeah, like a little, oh. a little bug, something that's going to infect you, make you feel <laughs> ill enough to, to um, yeah, be under the weather. Okay. Well, that's I'm an Australian refreshed. term, no? I mean, we yeah, there you go. Really? Oh, I've just never heard of a lurgy, but um, I don't have one. I'm the opposite. I'm refreshed. I'm well. And it's good to be back on the podcast. Great stuff. Well, good to uh, good to have you, Vin. First story up is the Twitter hacker being extradited to the USA. Can you talk us through that one? Yeah, this was... It was a British man who had pleaded guilty in New York for his role. So he was part of the Twitter hack of 2020. And when looking into it, and you know he's pleaded to a lot more as well, so this wasn't his only offence. Uh, he's not a one-trick pony, right? So we'll go through his other security offences and how he did it and what he's done um, more holistically. But his name is Joseph James O'Connor. He's 23, also known by his alias Plug Walk Joe. I'm not sure of the meaning behind that. I don't know what a plug walk is. But he, like you said, Guy, he was extradited to the US from Spain back in April. Now, his for his cyber offences, it's it's a whopper of a, of a consequence, right? We're talking 77 years Oof. in prison, yeah, and we'll forfeit more than $794,000 in addition to paying restitution to his victims. So I don't know what that looks like in terms of restitution. I don't think it's going to be a small amount. But there's a lot to pay for in terms of the cyber offenses that he has pleaded guilty to, essentially. Uh, but to start with the whopper, um, this is the one I wanted to talk through first was Twitter in 2020. And we all heard it. Um, it was O'Connor using social engineering to access Twitter's backend. Um, and then after that, really, what he did first, or helped had a part in doing, was accessing celebrity accounts and posted a scam soliciting Bitcoin. Um and it was sent to a whole bunch of different people, right? A bunch of celebrities were talking the likes of Joe Biden, Elon Musk. Is, is Joe a celebrity or a... <laughs> <laughs> Depends what the definition of... I think he's a celebrity. Oh, me too. Um, yeah. But even company Twitter is too. It's not just people. I think Apple got done. Um, and it was along the lines of a post on Twitter, along the lines of you know, feeling grateful and with double all payments sent to this Bitcoin address. You send me a thousand bucks, I'll send you back two thousand bucks. Right. Sounds like a good deal of his legit, right? You Sounds know, like cyber Oprah. Yeah, you get a thousand bucks. You get a thousand bucks. Um, and no surprise, right? Within minutes, hundreds of transfers. We're talking like over a hundred grand. Like people were so quick to go ahead and send their money because of these celebrities and the 
Twitter with that tick saying this is an authentic profile, like you're going to get people who send things through. It's quite amazing, like, you know, as you're talking through that, the kind of social engineering at scale and getting access to all those celebrity accounts and, and leveraging the trust of celebrities. It's like brand jacking, you know, in the normal cyber world where you get a well-trusted brand. We know like phishing attacks work way better, right, when it comes from a brand that you trust and it sort of bypasses that part of your brain that's suspicious. So, you know, you, you see somebody like Elon who... Uh, yeah, I mean, he's quite active on Twitter and, and says a lot of <laughs> says a lot of stuff. So <laughs> it's not beyond the bounds of reality that he would also say something like, "Hey, give me a thousand bucks and I'll give you two thousand. So pretty elegant um, social engineering. Yeah, and just given, I guess, how social media has made, I guess, the general public have more of an insight to these celebrity lives, and there's almost that oh, I forgot the word for it. It's that kind of like a a relationship with someone that you don't actually like no but based off seeing like their posts and what they're saying like you feel like you know you know them quite well and that trust is then exposed when people are actually saying oh you know like this is generally a very good person like why would they say something that wasn't true or didn't have like you know ill intent towards so yeah we were seeing a lot of money lost there a lot of trust broken um and you know it goes further which is you know not uh i guess shocking to anyone listening but then it kind of goes then to sell Twitter accounts of public figures out as well. So there's once you're in the Twitter's back end, you have access to quite a lot. And then from there, you can kind of spread out the attack and infiltrate and you know, cause more damage essentially. Yeah, so it's essentially almost like access to the to the accounts for, for money. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're ultimately always looking for ways to monetize this stuff, right? So it doesn't, doesn't surprise me that... Um, that happened either but he was, he was in, involved in or has at least pleaded guilty apparently to cyber stalking war fraud money laundering like he's got a laundry list of, of things that he was kind of up to it looks like yeah definitely um as part of i guess his guilty kind of plea um sim swapping and i know we've spoken about this on the pod before where you know for those who haven't come across sim swapping before it's essentially being able to contact a mobile carrier, convince them that, hey, you know, I want to port my number to something else completely different. And what an attacker gets out of that is, well, they've got a new number registered against an account. You know, 2FA usually sends an SMS back with a passcode of some sorts for a one-time password, and then they get access to your account, right? So it's pretty easy to do. We see other schemes where they take this to the next level by using SIM farms and stuff. But specifically for O'Connor was... There must be a theme or something here, but TikTok accounts, like highly visible okay. TikTok accounts that, you know, because of SIM swapping, he was able to gain access to. Um, and there were two notable ones. I don't know their names because, yes, I'm still not on TikTok. I refuse to, to download it for my leisure. I'd assumed you'd be on there spending your <laughs> evenings TikToking. Yeah, and then the hours just kind of disappear after that. Um, but it, it's interesting, right, because one of them, it was more of like a hey, I can release all your pub, all your private stuff, like your photos, your messages, all that stuff on a Discord um, server. Uh, so it wasn't really looking for too much. I was just saying, like, hey, we can kind of get in, and, and this is what we can do. But then for another account, which is not TikTok, now we're moving different social media platforms to Snapchat. So guys, just explain to you Snapchat. You take a photo. You said <laughs> no, I'm only joking. We all know what Snapchat is. You know, I sort of don't, and that's embarrassing to say given I'm in tech, but I'm, I'm so allergic to social media that uh, I'm only vaguely aware of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so there's sim swapping again. Um, I guess it was the ability to get, you know, the, what they say as, uh, I guess, private photos, if you will. Now, I'm not going to say they're going to be wholesome, like, you know, 
photos with like your family or your mom or like doing something quite you know wholesome um, but this was actually extortion where it's like hey you actually go ahead and you know send me money otherwise it was actually be leaked out as well so a huge invasion of privacy um, and just that theme you know social media platforms seems to be a kind of thing yeah, it is quite scary. I mean, I think the thing I take from all of this, Finn, is the uh, the length of the sentence is not small, right? 77 years no. is, oof, I mean, that's uh, I mean, it's basically the rest of the guy's life. I'm, I'm looking at the photo of the perp walk, which I'm assuming was in Spain. And um, mm-hmm. I mean, if you didn't get 77 years for the cyber crimes in the photo, he's wearing socks with sandals. And, you know, that, <laughs> that should straight away be another five years on top of whatever he got. Um, but, you know, I, I think to your point, living in Spain, a UK citizen with an Irish name, it actually looks like, but, you know, extradited to New York. And that's starting to point to uh, that international collaboration that we're seeing more and more stories of and, and more and more instances of where folks are getting picked up in one country for a, a cybercrime that has impacted people either globally or in another country. So that's it's definitely the kind of trend we're seeing. And it sort of mm-hmm. leads nicely, actually, or sort of nicely into the the next story, um, where a bunch of cyber agencies around the the world, you mean really the Five Eyes uh, countries in, in large, um, have found espionage infrastructure in over fifty countries. So, I don't think any surprises here. You know, I think the the conversation we're having more and more these days around critical national infrastructure um, has become top of mind. It's part of the zeitgeist here in Australia. It's been talked about at a uh, government level, and actually fairly soon we're. We're looking to have a guest on to talk about OT security, which obviously links pretty heavily into uh, into CNI and and critical national infrastructure. But this snake, um, the the implant that they've called Snake, has uh, been analysed by those agencies, and, and there's been an advisory issued, and you know it's across the FBI in the US, National Security Agency, CISA, um, in the UK, the National Cybersecurity Centre, in Canada, Centre for Cybersecurity and Comms uh, Security Establishment. Uh, Australia's ACSC, New Zealand's National Cybersecurity Centre. So like a bunch of different agencies have gone together and, and issued this advisory. Um, I read through, uh, CISA has a really detailed PDF. So for anyone who's interested, yeah, I mean, if you Google Snake CISA, you'll you'll find the PDF, but it does a really quite a detailed breakdown in terms of uh, what this thing was. But, um, and I don't know if you've read through it, Van, but like what I took away from it was the the level of effort that's gone into building this thing sounds like, you know, it, it was very professionally done. Um, you know, the, the CISA um, white paper, the advisor kind of talks about how it was written in C code and um, that back then you couldn't do object-oriented programming, but actually they've sort of started to do that naturally um, because they understood the, the value of being kind of modular, if that makes sense, so they could kind of use different parts of the system depending on which system or infrastructure they were on, um, including in different um, network protocols. They have a whole network stack included in Snake, so they could, depending on whether they're on HTTP server, use a like, version of that or um, kind of raw TCP. Um, really kind of interesting to see the level of effort that has gone into building this thing and uh, and how ubiquitous it is, like 50 countries, uh, which is I mean, I find that that really interesting. Yeah, I, I did manage to read through, or really the first part of the CISA document, which is what I was interested in, like, you know, where it originated from, like how early it was. I think the first version was like 2003 or something. Mm-hmm. So it gives a lot of time to actually be worked on and not perfected, but improved in the way that, to your point, all those different type of, you know, stack technologies and encryption um, has led kind of to what snake malware is today. 
Now, one thing that I did also read was how you could be very good at what you do, but human error is always going to be a component of it. And in this case, it's what's worked out for us, right? It was the case where based off, you know, they actually use an open SSL library in this case to kind of manage the uh, different human keys for them. And the fact that it was only 128 bit meant that it wasn't as good as, you know, what we're very well accustomed to today, which is 256. So based off that, we're actually get, able to get a lot of information about this thing while we're able to kind of read into it, which is why when you point out, guy, there's a lot of like information on this particular piece because we're able to then have a look into underneath the hood and see exactly how it's doing it or what it's trying to do. Yeah, it, absolutely. Um, but yeah, again, not to take away from, like I think the opening line of the advisory was something like this is the most sophisticated piece of mm. malware we've we've sort of dealt with. Um, so yeah. clearly the the folks who've done the investigation, let me just find it here. I've got it. Yeah, we consider Snake to be the most sophisticated cyber espionage tool um, in the FSB's arsenal. So like clearly there's a level of them being impressed with the, the work that's been done. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, some of, the, some of the stuff that it's doing obviously is the exfil of sensitive data and documents from the systems that it's on. And it's been found in a bunch of different places across education, critical national infrastructure. Um, and it works across lots of different operating systems. So again, the modular design means that it can work in Linux, Mac OS, Windows, um, and to your point, it's it's been around for a while. I think it was originally called. I'm probably going to say this wrong. Is it Uroboros? The um, Uroboros. Yeah. Uruburus. I had to uh, I had to look it up, but it's the snake that eats itself. And apparently, there was an embedded image in there of that um, in one of the earlier versions back from 2003. So there there was a kind of a trail of breadcrumbs, I suppose, within mm-hmm. um, within this piece of malware that the investigators and the analysis um, the analysts were able to kind of track back through. But again, you know, points to that collaboration that like we've talked about it on the show so many times, but I think it's definitely evolving and solidifying between uh, nation states as they kind of, they look to kind of, I suppose, lock down and secure themselves um, against these kind of, um, yeah, in this case, infrastructure, um, uh, you know, issues with the infrastructure or CNI in this case. Mm. We seem to have a government threat going here, Vin. Um, in our next story, we're actually over to the EU. So obviously, they're some of the countries that were part of the uh, the advisor in this one. Um, mm-hmm. But it looks like there's, I mean, the European Union certainly has been more and more aggressive when it comes to privacy legislation. You know, we've seen the GDPR. We've seen them go after, you know, air quotes, big tech in a way that are, I think it's fair to say the US hasn't really done. Um, probably because of the politics in the US makes that more difficult to do. And obviously it's in the, the European Union's interest, I think in large part to, um, yeah, not go so gently on big tech, but, uh, you know, here, here they're pushing obviously for cyber labeling um, for any of the cloud services or CSPs that are going to operate in the European bloc. Um, what can you tell us? Well, if you want to easily do business in Europe, then there may be some hoops you have to jump through first. That might be the tagline for this one, I think. A little bit clickbaity, but if you are the likes of you know, big US tech giants, right? Amazon, Google, Microsoft, really any other non-European Union cloud service provider, you're going to look for a cybersecurity label from the EU. You get that stamp of approval, if you will, to say, hey, I can handle sensitive data. And to do so, they will also need to do it as a joint venture with the EU-based company to get said label. 
Now, as expected, and this is a draft, and I want to call that out, there will be uh, amendments to it. There will be other versions of it. Um, I think each country individually can then choose to kind of enforce certain parts. It's kind of up to them, right? But what we see so far, some conditions that need to be met is, you know, these US tech giants or others involved can only have a minority stake as part of that venture uh, with that EU-based company. Uh, and there's things like employees that access EU data would need to undergo specific screenings, not just train, but screening, and also be located within that 27 country block as well. Um, so we're talking big things here. We're talking about cloud service that needs to be operated and maintained in the EU. And you know, why is this important? Well, the document itself points out that they want to be kind of put controls in place that allows any companies uh, that operate and, and use EU data to be based in the EU and that no entity from outside of the EU have effective control over the cloud service provider. So really just bringing everything back to what you kind of pointed out, like Europe's very firm and aggressive stance on, hey, we want to try secure people's data and make sure that we're putting all these mitigation tactics around it to kind of keep it within kind of the EU um, region. I don't know what you think, Vin. It feels like part of a larger movement of... Uh, nations or unions that are kind of moving away from the open internet like it, it feels like the you know the early blossoming of the internet was just it was like a wild west everything was open everything was available you could sort of do whatever you wanted and i think you know what you what you observe is you know we talk a lot about the the cyber resilience side with attackers and uh nation states activists like folks with malicious intent but like big tech actually does play a, a part in cyber resilience, I would say, at a nation state level, right? Because um, they get to the point where they're so large and so much of the citizen data is sitting on a cloud service provider or is being used by government agencies. And that naturally reduces, I suppose, a less resilience potentially. Um, you know, if you don't have a, a, a bigger stake in how those entities are, are operating, Relates a little bit back to the CNI story in the previous one and, and Snake, but but only loosely, I suppose. You know, like you're looking here at how things like critical national infrastructure, and I, I would include in that, you know, the consumption of things like services and hardware from other sort of countries, and that's been a hot topic over the last few years. But it feels like this is kind of part of that in a way, right? It's the I suppose trying to get the genie back in the bottle um, or the toothpaste back in the tube when it comes to control over the the way technology works in, in an environment when it's whether it's you know the European Union or a specific country. But as you say, like this is a proposal, so it's not a done deal, but it sort of signals maybe an aggressive stance against uh non-EU cloud service providers that uh, yeah feel feels pretty it feels aggressive. Yeah. And you can kind of see both sides of it, right? Because on one side, you know, national security and data privacy like that's obviously important. That's what the draft is in place to help with. But then you also get the other side of it, which is, you know, the US Chamber of Commerce have come out and said that it makes it harder for US companies to have a presence to do business in the EU, right? There's an unequal footing there. And then that brings that whole idea of, you know, securitous productivity, which is something that we all face. I'll be in a much smaller scale where you work um, in terms of juggling security versus productivity, talking about things like, you know, MFA uh, being, you know, great for security, but productivity, it could kind of turn like that type of low-level conversation that we generally have. But now we're moving it to the national level. Like we're talking about you know, that national level of security and privacy around data. So that's a much bigger fish to fry. 
Yeah, definitely. I, it's something to kind of think about a bit is the, like we've gone towards free market efficiency, you know, no borders, let's let's all do everything and send everything everywhere. Um, that seems to be kind of butting up against that sovereign resilience, like the bit where within a particular, uh, like the European bloc or the US or, you know, pick your, pick your nation state, like how do you do both? Like it's really hard to have kind of a, a free digital market and at the same time, like to have that sovereign kind of resilience and control. Weirdly, it feels like a little bit of a walk back from, yeah, I don't know. I, I had a perception where, oh, like many years ago, certainly in Australia, there was a, a reluctance to do cloud uh, in many mm-hmm. government uh, agencies and entities. They were you know, actively sort of on-prem um, and the rest of the world was kind of going for cloud services because they tended to be more secure, easier to use, Um and, and just generally been built with you know budgets that could make them more secure than folks could do with their own on-prem. Obviously, there's you know swings and roundabouts and there's trade-offs there. I get that. You know that's a pretty broad statement I made. But you got a small lean team trying to secure an environment that's very difficult compared to just consuming a cloud service. So that's amazing. Like the free market says, go for the cloud service. It's cheaper. You get more efficiencies. You know, amazing for the organization. But the flip side is, where does the data live? Has the data secured? And I think we're starting to see that play out now with this kind of proposal from the um, yeah proposal in the the EU. But it does feel like um, <laughs> it's like they're clawing back something that is this, this sort of not the the horse is bolted because I think the European Union saw that with GDPR. You know, they they can introduce these big, bullshy um, regulations. And then, like in that case, in the big tech, we're able to figure out ways to just get their servers back on. In that case, many times it was U.S. soil. And then you just click the ridiculous allow all cookies button. So, like, the outcome was kind of the same, but just introduced a bunch of friction and cost to to organizations. It'll be interesting to see where this one goes. So, uh, with that, we're over to the, the short sort of story roundup. And the first cab off the ranks is the... Capita ransomware attack, um, which happened a little while ago. It's um, basically, you know, they're they're looking at how much that's going to cost at this stage, and they're they're saying around sort of well in in pounds, it's sort of fifteen to twenty million, um, which kind of equates to I'm guessing somewhere around twenty million dollars, which yeah is not a small amount. Um, and that was the the sort of Black Basta ransomware attack that was on its systems and a bunch of their clients. Um, uh, they couldn't provide those kind of public services that, and it, it lasted for days actually. So um, it was a pretty pretty big breach that they had, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that we talk about on the the pod quite a lot is how difficult it can be to gauge the cost of things like ransomware. But I think we're seeing more and more data to support the impact and public reporting of big big numbers. You know, when we saw Optus or Medicare last year, there was. Um, suggested numbers. I don't know if they were realized for those organizations in terms of the impact, but here, you know, again, we're seeing um, for an organization in the UK, and, and for those who don't know, Capita, is a, it's, they're in the UK, they're an outsourcer, um, and they do public sector uh, specialization. Um, but a huge amount of costs here of in like um, sort of specialist um, services, so huge amounts in terms of the incident responders, the forensics that are involved, all the remediation costs, the recovery costs, and um, and then obviously there's an investment to, I suppose, bolster their cybersecurity environment for the future, which is good news, right? I think 
that's the, you know, if there's a, a silver lining on the dark cloud, quite often it's that thing where a breach happens and then organizations get to spend money to fix the things that have happened based on lessons learned and the incident analysis. Yeah. So many times we see these big numbers, um, you know, from a financial perspective, like we're talking about heaps, like millions of dollars here. And I do like the idea of these more statistics coming up in terms of how much it all costs to respond to it as well, because as a maybe different organization that doesn't deal in quite those big numbers, um, what is consistent is kind of what you mentioned before, the, the forensics, it's the cleanup, it's the part after that, which arguably for a smaller organization could actually be more expensive in a way, um, depending on what you're looking at. So um, I feel like there's something there. I definitely feel like there's something where we can then start to compile, not just, you know, front on like this is what we've lost, but hey, this is the amount of time it's taken to recover. This is what we had to do as an organization. And once that data size becomes big enough, let's segment it, right? Like, you know, how big is the organization? What industry vertical you're in? And then that kind of helps people see that, hey, if something was to happen to me, this is roughly what we would be expecting. And then kind of work that into things like strategy planning, budgeting, security investment, stuff like that. Yeah, it's a huge part. I mean, I think it's it's happening more and more. You definitely see that show up in cyber insurance where, you know, mm-hmm. the understanding of, you know, prob- uh, probability costs and loss exceedance curves where you can say, like, there's a 90% chance of a $1 million um, uh, loss based on a ransomware attack. Like, that's becoming definitely much more doable. And um, mm. I think that the actuarial data for cyber insurance and, well, insurance, right, it's, it's not even cyber just general insurance um, of which cyber is part, they've getting, they're getting better and better at kind of understanding the impact and the, the costs um, depending on those segment sizes, verticals, et cetera. So, yeah, interesting to see where that uh, where that all lands in a few years. But, you know, based on um, patching is one of the things that comes up when, it, you know, when you're <laughs> looking at uh, organizations and what's your premium. Um, like one of the questions you're probably going to get asked is like, how how do you patch? How often do you patch? Um, what's your schedule like? Microsoft obviously has their latest tranche. And what can you tell us about that one, Ben? I don't have a plan, but that was probably one of the smoothest segues into a short story on this pod. So thanks, man. Kudos. <laughs> <to that. laughs> um, I wonder if patch or patching is like a trigger word for a lot of our listeners out there when they hear it. They go, ooh, just thinking of having to go ahead and actually you know manage. Uh, I guess, patches within the environment. But, you know, Microsoft has something for Microsoft admins to look forward to. There's 49 patches in this month's Patch Tuesday. Yay. A lot of things to go through, a lot of work to be done. Um, I think the key, the noteworthy ones for, well, I found quite interesting, there are a couple of exploit vulnerabilities. So CVE 29336 and 24932 which allow local privilege escalation and secure boot bypass to allow an attacker to change a system's boot policy, respectively. Um, They are both subcritical. But what I wanted to focus on, because, you know, obviously at Mimecast here, one of our big things is email security and how emails can get into an organization and kind of spread is CVE 29325. So it's got a score, a CVS score of 8.1, and essentially a vulnerability that would allow an attack on an Outlook user through the preview pane. Now, I know this has come up before about these attacks being clickless, right? And we always associate emails with clicking on the link. But what happens if an attack can actually be initiated just through looking at the preview pane? So per Microsoft, this is what is actually going to happen. In an email attack scenario, an attack will exploit the vulnerability by sending a specifically crafted email to the victim. Now, the victim will go ahead and start to open it on an effective version 
of the Microsoft Outlook or to the point of the preview pane, it could just display a preview of the crafted email. Now, as an end result, what can happen? Just by the preview pane being opened up, an attacker could go ahead and execute remote code on the victim's machine. So something that we definitely don't want within an environment, something that we need to stop, and that's why this patch is so important. But as a workaround, because we know it takes time to deploy some of these as well, word from Microsoft is actually to allow users to only read emails in plain text format until the patch is deployed. So all of this is documented on the Microsoft website as well. If you just kind of uh, search for the CVE29325, it's going to have all the information there for you. So a PSA, please deploy this patch because, you know, that's just another way people can try to get into your, your network. Awesome. Thank you, Van. And then look, the, the last one's pretty quick. Um, hit a couple of days ago at the time of recording and we're Technology One. So one of the, the biggest, if not the biggest software companies in Australia, and unfortunately had to hold trading after a cyber attack. So they, they do ERP um, software. They're a SaaS provider, very much like us. Um, but they've reported that they've had an unauthorized third party access the, access the, the company's internal Microsoft 365. Uh, it's not like I haven't said that a million times already, so I don't know why I said <laughs> it differently today, but Microsoft 365 platform. Um, but they, the company themselves requested the, the trading halt as they're kind of looking to figure out what's what's going on there. Um, but importantly, um, the customer-facing SaaS platform isn't actually connected to M365, so it doesn't look like that's going to be impacted. So as they, uh, as you would expect, they're, they're kind of investigating the issue, um, running their cyber response, and, and away they go. So best to look to, to those guys. I hope it, um, I hope it goes, it goes well. They're, they're. They know their stuff, it looks like, from a security perspective. They've got lots of um, security certifications. You know, they're in IRAP, et cetera. So, you know, it's not um, not anything other than to say it could happen to, to anyone, unfortunately. So, yeah, go well, Technology One. Vin, thanks so much for your time today. Really, as always, appreciate your, your uh, insights and the, the episode for news today. Um, for everyone else, thanks so much for listening. And, and until next week, if you want to explore any important topics in cybersecurity, do please jump on to getcyberresilient.com and check out some of the latest articles, including one on legacy technologies that remain a huge thorn in the side of cybersecurity leaders. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay safe.